Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. This is where top performance performers share their secrets with you to help you achieve your personal and your professional goals. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and together along with my incredible guests, we bring you inspiring and actionable insights to take your life and business to the next level. This show is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally. So in my opinion, that makes it a must listen. And again, it is all because of my guests. So let's dive in. And my guest today, John M. Jennings, is not just an ordinary author. He's a trailblazer in the field of wealth management and leadership. And as the president and chief strategist of St. Louis Trust and Family Office, overseeing a staggering, I read billion and I couldn't talk, overseeing a staggering $15 billion in assets, he is a recognized force in the industry. But his impact extends far beyond the boardroom. He is also the acclaimed author of the groundbreaking book, which is in my desk, on my desk, The Uncertainty, uncertain, uncertainty. I want to add an L to it. I'm so sorry, John. The Uncertainty yeah. Solution, How yeah. to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. And this really is a literary masterpiece, and it has been hailed as a definitive guide for navigating the complexities of finance, providing readers with invaluable insights, best practices, and a refreshingly accessible approach to managing wealth in today's tumultuous landscape. I'm not sure the word tumultuous covers it. Charles R. Schaub, Schwab himself, it's Monday, isn't it, has endorsed yeah. the, uncertainty, <laughs> the uncertainty solution as a must-have addition to anyone's re- reading list. And honestly, such high praise speaks volumes to his expertise and the impact of his work. Oh, and John Jennings is also an adjunct professor at Washington University's prestigious Olin Business School, where he imparts his wisdom there to starving students. Good morning, John. Welcome, and thank you for sending your book. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. Oh, Denise, I'm excited to be here. Can't wait to uh, chat with you. Good. And you're going to be doing all the chatting. I don't know what you know about this show, but I tend to mute myself and listen yes. and scribble. I'm writing things down. Go, ooh, ooh, ooh. So, yeah, I have noticed that. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to your show. I, I've noticed that. So, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm ready. Well, I want people to know you. They already know me, and I'm not all that fascinating. However, my guests are. And you know, when I, and I just mentioned the word tumultuous. That doesn't really cover what we've been going through, does it? No, I think um, you know people feel a lot of uncertainty these days. But I'll tell you what's interesting is I finished writing this book in April of uh, 2022. So what is that? 15, 16 months ago. And back then people said, oh, my gosh, I, I wish, I bet you wish people that your book was coming out now. And it didn't come out until you know, last month. And I said, you know, we are feeling very uncertain now, but I'm certain in a year we will also feel uncertain. <laughs> so I do think there's some aspect of, you know, we always 
feel a sense of uncertainty. And I'll tell you, it, it, that happens regardless of what the stock market and economy is doing. Because I'll tell you, there are times when the market is way up. Like in 2021, the stock market did incredibly well. And people were saying, including clients of mine, um, things seem too good. Um, I've moved <laughs> or I want to move cash or gold or whatever uh, because things feel great. And then in 2022, the stock market goes down and people are like, oh, my gosh, it's, it's, it's scary. I, you know, I, I, I want to pull money out or I don't want to put money into the, the, the market. So I think it, you know, it's our human nature to just to, when we can't recognize a pattern, we feel uncertain. Well, and here's this. There, there are too many, in my opinion, too many working variables. I don't think any one of us can really kind of figure out what's going to happen from hour to hour. I was chatting one day with my sister, and she just very casually said, oh, I just lost $40,000. <gasps> you know, I had a heart attack for her. Right. right. Yeah, it's just like, how can you be so calm about it? But she's been working with her, you know, her stocks, her bonds, her portfolio forever and ever and ever. So she's yeah. pretty calm. I just about cried for her. And she said, no, yeah. it'll, it'll be fine. And it was. But, she, you know, it's, even it's really with hard. that, it is. And even with that, you know, oh, I got this, it'll be okay. Attitude, she's still uncertain. She still doesn't. I said, well, you know, what do you think is going to happen? She says, I don't know. But it'll get better. Okay. Yeah. Love your attitude. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll tell you, it, it was interesting. In March of 2020, you know, the, the stock market dropped about almost 35% in less than a month. So it was the steepest decline we had experienced ever in the stock market, even more so than the stock market crash in 1929. And, um, I was calling a lot of our clients to check in, and we only work with about 60 families, so it, it's something that is actually possible. So I, I would go on these long walks and call clients, and I talked to one of my client clients, and she's like, she's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm not panicking. I'm not freaking out. She goes, I did make the mistake of looking at our family portfolio the other day, and we are down $120 million. <laughs> okay. And I was having hysterics for my sister. At 40, I, I so it's all relative. You, yeah, it yeah. is. That's, so what did yeah. she do? What did she but, do? Yeah, so, you know, she stayed the course. Now, you know, they had, had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to begin with, so, uh, you know, they have, they have a big buffer. And, and that tells you a little bit about our company. So we're, we're what's known as a multifamily office. So we only work with about 60 families. If you take the, the 60 families and divide it into, you know, 15 billion, it, it's 200 and something million of families. So we, we mainly work in the 50 to $500 million range of um, families. So I've had this great privilege over the last two decades of, of working alongside families that are all just extremely wealthy. Uh, it's just a, somewhat of a different experience than if I was working with people that had, had, had lower uh, amounts. Um, and I'll tell you, one, one of the things that I've learned is these people that are incredibly wealthy, first and foremost, they're just people. <laughs> and right. when, it comes to investing, it, when it comes to investing, they still have a lot of the same behavioral issues and fears and worries that you know, all the rest of us have. And that makes sense. Uh, it really does. And I am at a loss to understand why people get so, frankly, nasty and jealous of people who they perceive to have more than they do. How is that even any of your business? Take care of yourself. 
Yeah. Well, you know, comparison leads to unhappiness. It, it really, it really does. I mean, there have been studies, and you've probably heard of these, in terms of compensation, and they ask people the following question: You know, let's assume that you you make eighty thousand dollars a year, but you find out that your coworkers that have the same job of you as you make ninety thousand dollars a year. So that's that's option one. Okay. Option two is that you make seventy thousand dollars a year. But you find out your coworkers make sixty grand a year. Which do you prefer? And quite a few uh, respondents, over half, choose option two, which is I want to make ten grand less, but make more than my coworkers. <laughs> you know, and I think that just shows that you know comparison um, is really difficult. Well, and we're mean. People can be pretty yeah. mean. Right. Exactly. <laughs> You know, we, we're human. We have, you know, all of the, the lower, baser instincts unless we work on them. So, yeah, you know, I think that's that. absolutely right. Yeah. So, listen, I've, I've got so many questions for you. This is a terrific book. I read it. I read, I threw it when it first landed on my desk some weeks ago, and then I read it this past weekend. And there's a lot of things that I frankly don't understand, but there's, so many things that make me want to understand that I want to go deeper and you know it's an easy to read book you wouldn't think so you're thinking oh it's about the stock market it's about this that I mean it's actually very readable oh well thank you I, I appreciate that yeah I just I just got a uh, review in the last few days on Goodreads of somebody that said um I didn't realize this was an investing book. I kind of misread what it was about, and I have no interest in investing. But I actually read it and loved it. <laughs> and so uh, you know, that's about the highest praise I think I could get, right? Right, and that's where I went with it because, you know, I'm not an investor. I doubt that I'll ever have the courage or the guts or the the courage or the guts. Let's just stay there. But it's a it's a fascinating read. I mean, there was a couple things I'm like, oh, I did not know. I would have never thought of that. They like said it's very readable, and you've got a great sense of humor. Oh well, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, I read I read quite a bit, so I read you know, seventy books a year about, and about half nonfiction and half fiction. And I realized as, you know, I started really paying attention about five years ago as I was starting to prepare to write this book, you know, what books do I like versus ones that I like not as much? And I realized that books that I like, nonfiction books I just tear through, are, are ones that are mostly stories and aren't really lecturing at you, <laughs> you know, and that are, you know, so I really tried to, uh, in writing this book, to be mostly stories and mostly mostly examples, um, which, I, which I think is really important. And, you know, I talk at one point in my book about the power of stories and how we've evolved as a species to take, pay attention to stories. So that helped informed, you know, I need to be telling, you know, a lot of stories in my book and not just be talking about, you know, boring things, right? Sorry, I had muted you because I was scribbling. I do that a lot. I am actually in, um, I'm in the book, and there's, let's see what page is this? I need to put it under my light. I think it is page 95, page 95. It says, in the, you know, the chapter that I'm looking at says, why experts make predictions even though they aren't good at it? This is why I don't watch TV. This is why I don't pay any attention to so many experts because 
and I'm not going to name any names. I suspect you know who some of these financial gurus yeah. are, but yeah. I'm not going to call them out. They do it all on their own. But the thing is, they have a history, a record of being wrong all the stinking time, yet here they are. Yeah. So what's that all about? Yeah, so, and, and let me just say, experts that make predictions of the future in economics or investments, you know, talking about the stock market or politics, have an abysmal track record. They um, do. I don't want to suggest that experts in other areas can't make predictions about the future that are pretty pretty uh, spot on. So, for instance, when it comes to, like, medicine, you know, if you have a particular disease or sickness or injury, doctors usually can do a pretty good job of telling you your approximate path of recovery or, you know, <laughs> further decline, right? So th there are areas where experts do make predictions that are accurate. The problem is, is with investing in economics and politics, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, there's just too many variables, and the variables are changing. And there are some patterns, but what happens is, you know, the, the you know, if you look at the stock market, it's it's millions or hundreds of millions of people every day trading thousands of stocks, and um, you know, there's these feedback loops, and it's 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 what you call a complex adaptive system. So it's just really there, there's there's too many variables really to to, to model it accurately, but yet in, investment experts and economic experts continue to make predictions of the future, even though they're not good at it. And there's some, some key reasons, and the first and foremost is just overconfidence. And this is a ingrained human bias, and it's ingrained because it actually you know, helps our survival, or it did you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of years ago, to, to have you know, confidence was, was something that was in, important both socially and, you know, the ability to um, kind of go out and forage and, you know, you know, find new things. But being overconfident is something that we all are. And one of my favorite studies of this deals with driving. And there was a study from the 1980s that, said, that, that surveyed Americans, and 90% of Americans put themselves in the uh, top half of driving ability. So that's, that's kind of funny, right? So 90% of people think that they're above average, obviously not possible. But the, the better study is from the 1960s that found uh, what they did is they, they interviewed uh, 100 drivers, 50 of whom were in the hospital and put there because there. of injuries they received in an automobile accident. And 35 of those 50 were found by the police in their reports to have absolutely caused the accident that was severe enough to cause them to have to go to the hospital. So that's 50 of them, you know, these drivers that were, were injured. The other 50 drivers had spotless driving records, never been in an accident, never received a ticket. So they asked all 100 to rate their driving ability, and the responses between the two groups were indistinguishable. Everybody, with rare exception, put themselves at nearly an expert driving ability. So again, we don't tend to learn from um, our mistakes because we're overconfident. We think that we're smarter than other people or funnier or you know, better looking. Um, and this happens well, with, yeah, this all is the case those. with experts as well. So experts think they're better than they are at predicting, and even when they make a prediction and it's bad, they don't learn from their mistakes. They find excuses for why it didn't work out for them. 
Um, and a story I tell in my book, and this has always stuck with me, is there was this investment manager we use that is a deep value manager. So basically they're trying to buy companies that are, you know, don't look very good with the hopes that they will go up a lot in, in value. So this particular firm um, in 2010 shifted a lot to Japanese stocks. And I remember reading their quarterly commentaries and they explained, we think that the Japanese stocks have been oversold and there's a great value here. And we're going to, you know, this is a real great opportunity. This is almost, you know, once in a, you know, multiple decade buying opportunity for Japanese stocks. So they overloaded the portfolio with Japanese stocks. Well, in March of 2011, there was that earthquake off the coast of Japan that created a tsunami, which you know, caused great devastation to Japan, especially that meltdown of that nuclear reactor, right? So this threw Japanese, the, the economy, into a tailspin, and the stock market did horribly. So this investment manager looked horrible because of their overweight to Japanese stocks. And we had a call with him a few months after the tsunami, and we said, well, you really made a mistake overweighting the Japanese stocks. And they said, no, we didn't. We would have been right except for a natural disaster. It was a, it was a really good trade we did. It just didn't work out. <laughs> and kind of the point there is you, you don't get a mulligan just because there's a natural disaster or a pandemic or a terrorist attack or a boat stuck in a shipping canal or a, a war or, you know, whatever. Like the point is, is that these things happen all the time. And experts fail to predict the unpredictable, like there was going to be a tsunami that hit Japan. But that's the point. Like, you, you, you shouldn't listen to experts because they're not going to predict those sort of things, especially the things like wars and pandemics and earthquakes that really move the needle. I'm fascinated by this because, and I have to ask, is she still with the company? Oh, that, that oh, investment that, manager? That invest- yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was the entire firm that did this. They only have a few investment Ooh. strategies. So this was their international value product. So it wasn't just this individual that did it. It was their entire investment committee. And it just shows they didn't learn from their, their mistakes. So if an expert has an excuse like that, like, I, I would have been right, but something unpredictable happened, you know they didn't learn. Like what we would have liked to hear was um, – you know, we really learned from this. You know, next time we're not going to go all in on something, right? Um, but I will tell you, our firm, we still have some money with this investment manager, but I don't think we've added anything since 2011. So we didn't sell out because some of our clients had large tax gains, and we do like their investment style. But, um, but, but yeah, we, we, you know, if they would have said they learned from their mistake, we probably would have kept adding to them. And that leads me to the next part of your book that I have, you know, I've got sticky notes all over this poor thing, why luck plays such a big role in investment results. And I think you just kind of shared that with us by accident. But you're right. I mean, we, look, I turned off the news 12, maybe 13 years ago. I can't remember now, but it's not a long time ago. I cut off cable completely cut it. I don't watch TV anyway. I'm a reader. I'm a voracious reader. And I found, I noticed that as I had the news on while I was wandering around, I never sit in front of the TV. It's just, ah, I can't do it. But, you know, I'll, I'll turn it on or I would turn it on, you know, while I was cleaning or while I was trying to build a website or just, you know, turn it on for 
company, if you will. And I realized as I started really paying attention to how I was reacting that I had a headache most of the time. My stomach mm. hurt. It, yeah. it was ticking me off like you cannot believe just to hear the same garbage, or as we say in the deep south, garbage, over and over and uh-huh. over again. And it didn't matter what channel. It's like they all got the stenographer sent them the talking points, and it was going to be the same thing with different attitudes, no matter where you were. I cut cable, saved yeah. money, and saved my sanity. So yeah, I don't that makes total sense. I think that. that's a great that, that's a great idea. And um, you know, as you know, as I start my book, um, telling the story about the financial crisis and what a big effect it had on me as a wealth advisor, and I, I was consuming hours a day of financial news, um, a little bit from the, the TV, but, but mainly from you know, the, the traditional financial media, but also you know, uh, you know, commentaries and I'd do webinars and read all these in, investment manager um, you know, letters and consultants and, and everything. And I realized in the financial crisis, it didn't help me you know, to, to have all this up-to-date information. It was just noise. And the genesis of this book was realizing that for all my knowledge, and it was, it was sizable at the time, I knew much more about what's going on than I do now, um, but it didn't help me in terms of how I should advise my clients. And so I went on a, now, you know, since, since then it's been over 13 years, this, this decade-plus-long quest for investment wisdom. And oh, what this book is, what, yeah, yeah, what this book is, is this, this culmination of this quest and investment wisdom. So it's like, how should you make decisions in the face of uncertainty? And it's investment slanted, but it's also about how to make better decisions in the, wor- the real world. As, as well. And what I found was that the world is uncertain, and there's a lot of things that are just unknowable that we cannot make knowable, right? And it's best to not focus our, our, uh, our attentions on things that are unknowable, which is a lot of what we do in investing in life, and instead focus on what we do know and what we can control. So the essence of my book, it contains what are known as mental models, and there's about 35 of them. And mental models are things that you you study and you know and that you pull out and you can fall back on them to help make better decisions, especially during times of uncertainty. So, for example, I have an entire chapter on bell curves versus power laws, which sounds boring. Like people aren't going to want out, <laughs> want to run out, read the book, hearing that. But I, I really do make it, you know, more interesting than it sounds. But you know, as as humans, we're used to things that follow, you know, a bell curve pattern. You know, like you know, height and weight, you know, and birth weight and IQ and the size of trees and animals. And there's all these things in nature where things follow a bell curve, which means that there are, there isn't that great of variability between um, things, and you can sort of tell the, the differences. So, for instance, like you're used to seeing people around average height, and even if you see somebody that is super tall, let's say they're you know six seven or seven foot tall, you know that that's going to be a rare ca- uh, occurrence. And when you see somebody that tall, you're like, oh wow, that's really rare, right? So that's how bell curves work, but power laws work differently. So power laws you can think of it as being more wild randomness. So, for example, less than two percent of books sell over 5,000 copies. So the median book in the U.S. sells 300 copies. 
but the average sales are much higher than that. So there's 4% of authors provide 60% of the revenues. So what you have is you have this small concentration, relatively speaking, of authors like you know Stephen King and Malcolm Gladwell and, and people like that that are selling you know hundreds of thousands or millions of books, and then you have this tail where there's everybody else. And there's a lot of things that follow power law distributions. And so over the years, I read more and more. I read entire books on you know, statistics and power law distributions. And so that became this mental model. And importantly, the stock market and the distributions of returns of companies in the stock market follow a power law distribution. Yet most of the mathematics and the expectations the investment industry sets use the, the bell curve, which everybody knows is flawed, but they use it anyway. And if just as an investor you realize, okay, I'm going to shift my view of, of this bell curve way of thinking into a power law distribution way of thinking, it helps you make much better investment decisions, you know, especially when you're feeling uncertain. So that's an example of you know, studying and knowing something and, providing, and, and using it. Um, to make better decisions. So again, I have a chapter on power law distributions. And you know, chapters you just mentioned on you know, skill and luck in investing and listening to experts and causation versus correlation. These are all very important things to pull out to help you make decisions when, when, when the world feels uncertain. And I wanted to ask you, John, and, and this is a very random question. I'm not even sure that any Ooh, of us actually wait. Ooh, I can't have wait. <laughs> have the answer for it, but why do humans hate uncertainty? I mean, isn't yeah. that what life is really all about? You wake up yeah. or you yeah. don't. I, you know, we, we don't <laughs> know what's <laughs> right. We don't know what's yeah. going to happen from the minute we open our eyes and hit the floor and the devil says, oh, crap, she's awake, in my case. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why do we hate uncertainty? I actually don't hate it, I don't think. To me, it's like, ooh. Now I've got a yeah. challenge. Well, first, yeah, uh, you know, we, we have evolved a dislike uncertainty, but, but it varies in terms of our sensitivity to un, un, uncertainty. So there's actually you know, tests you can take. So, in fact, I was, um, as part of my company, I went through you know, this eight hours of like, this battery of psychological testing you know, in, in mathematical reasoning and leadership skills and different cognitive things and personality. And I actually have a, a pretty high tolerance for uncertainty. That being said, I still struggle with it. I mean, uh, everybody does to, to some extent. And the reason we dislike uncertainty, like so many things, has its basis in evolution. So if you, if you think back and let's say that you, you were a hunter-gatherer living uh, 100,000 years ago in a small tribe of, of other humans, your ability to spot patterns gave you a survival advantage. And the reason is if you can spot a pattern it, it actually helps you predict the future, which helps you survive. So, for, for instance, I mean, understanding patterns in seasons and weather or the, the migration patterns of, of prey or are those berries or mushrooms, are they poisonous or are they nutritious, nutritious? All these things helped our survival. So what happened was is that our ancestors that were better at spotting patterns had a survival advantage, which allowed them to reproduce more, which in turn led to more people that were good at spotting patterns, and then we are their descendants. And like so many things, there's a lot of things that happened 
you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago that aided our survival that aren't as helpful anymore. So if you can think about it in terms of food, right, our bodies evolved to, you know, whenever we had excess calories to store as fat, so when we had lean times, we could survive, right? So that was incredibly useful for our survival, but in today's modern world of abundance, it is not useful. And now, the, you know, big swaths of the population are battling obesity and, and being, being overweight. So similarly, with pattern recognition, the same thing is, is true where there's, you know, we're, we're rarely in mortal danger. But what happens is, is, is because of this, how we evolved, is when we can't see a pattern, we feel worried or anxious or sometimes even our fight or flight response kicks in. You know, our sympathetic nervous system, we become, you know, stressed and um, our, our pulse and our, our respiration and our, our blood pressure, everything raises as we're ready to, you know, fight or flee. But then what happens is when we resolve uncertainty, the opposite happens. Our parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, we relax, we get a dose of dopamine so it feels pleasurable. So it's kind of this complex relationship. It's not just that we hate uncertainty, it's that uncertainty is something we want to resolve, which gives us pleasure. So if you think about it, you don't want to know the ending of a great book, especially if it's a you know work of fiction, a thriller, or the end of a movie. And you don't want to know the end of the sports game before you start watching it. And that's why some people like to gamble, is because we like the non-threatening uncertainty, and then we love when it gets resolved. So this quest for certainty, this desire to resolve uncertainty is actually what's known as a, a primary human motive. So it flavors and colors so much of our decision and be behavior, even if we don't realize it. And unfortunately, a lot of what we do in today's modern world, especially with respect to the stock market, is not productive when it comes to battling uncertainty. It can be counterproductive. So what my book does is it lays out these mental models to fall back on to sort of override our evolutionary response to uncertainty, which will help people make better decisions, have better behavior, and then have more money in the future. Well, let's talk about those, those mental models. And I was writing down while you were talking just now, you were talking about primary human motive, and I wrote down knee-jerk reactions. <laughs> That's what I took out of that. Yeah. I mean, and people do, and, and we're going to get to the whole toilet paper thing too. I mean, we can't. I can't let you oh. go without talking oh. about that yeah, nonsense. Right. Anyway, what are? Can you give us some examples of mental models that will help battle uncertainty? Whether it's in the stock market, whether it's just yeah. in everyday normal life, what can you share? Yeah, um, sure. I, I think the most important investment mental model in the book is called the stock market is not the economy. And let me explain what I mean by that. So uh, yep, the economy is the real Yeah, so the economy is the real world, right? So these are things that more matter. <laughs> where, where the, it's not the stock market doesn't matter, but um, if you look at economic growth, which is measured by GDP, gross domestic product, and you look at growth, you know, year by year, and you look at the stock market year by year, there is no correlation between the two. So since World War II, the correlation is 0 .003, meaning it's basically zero. So there, there's no correlation. And what it means when two things are uncorrelated is that there's no relationship to when one moves one direction, whether the other will as well. 
sometimes the stock market's up and so is the economy, and sometimes the stock market's up and the economy's down and vice versa. So what that means is, is you cannot be looking to what's going on in the economy to tell you what's going on in the stock market. But what's interesting is there's research um, that came out of uh, Credit Suisse years ago that said what's interesting, though, is if you look at the prior year stock market returns and the next year's what's going on in the economy, it's a pretty high correlation. It's about a 0.6, meaning that uh, about 60% of the variability can be explained by in, in the economy by what's going on in the stock market. So it's somewhat becomes somewhat predictive. So what, what this means is the economy doesn't predict the stock market. But the stock market predicts the economy. Not perfectly. It's an ish, right? So as an investor, you'd love to have it reversed. You'd love to have things going on in the economy tell you what you should be doing with your stocks. But instead, it's reversed. What's going on with stocks tells you ish what's going to go happen in the economy. And let's, let's talk about an example. So back in 2020, remember, that's the, the big COVID year, right? So the, the high, higher... Yeah, so the the high prior to, you know, really COVID becoming a crisis in the U.S. was February 26th of 2020. And between February 26th and March 23rd, the stock market declined about 35%. So what was happening on, on March 23rd? This was the market low. Between March 23rd and the end of the year, the stock market rebounded by 70% to finish solidly in the black. So what was going on on March 23rd? Well, I'll tell you. We had just recorded our thousandth reported COVID death, and everything was still continuing to lock down. So if we had a crystal ball, so you and I, Denise, are sitting there with a crystal ball, and it tells us what's going to happen in the real world, but not the stock market. And it tells us, okay, thousandth COVID death. This coming quarter, GDP is going to decline by 8.9%. Unemployment is going to spike to almost 15%, the highest that we've seen since the Great Depression. By the end of the year, there will be over 330,000 U.S. COVID deaths. And worldwide, over the next three years, there's going to be 6 million. The pro sports leagues, like the NBA and NHL, are going to cancel their seasons. You can't travel internationally. Entire industries are going to be decimated, like you know, entertainment, hospitality, restaurants. Um, it's going to be just a bloodbath in terms of what's going to happen in the real world. I think most people would want to take their money out of the stock market, put it in cash, or even bury it in their backyard. But that's not what happened. The stock market rebounded by 70%. And we see this happen over and over again. So in 2008, 2009, the stock market declined 57% from peak to trough. But its low point, which is in March of 2009, there was no sign that the news was getting better. If anything, it got worse. I mean, the, the recession didn't end until months later, and unemployment didn't peak until November of that year, and then we hit the sovereign debt crisis, and U.S. Treasuries were downgraded. Like, the bad news just kept coming and coming, yet the market bottomed way in advance of the news becoming good. So the mental model here, the stock market's not the economy. And this is so important, whether you have you know, $1,000 invested in the stock market or $100 million invested in the stock market, it's so important to recognize is that you should not make changes to your portfolio based on any news or what you think is happening or will happen in the real world or in the economy. This is incredibly powerful and should be very freeing. So as an investor, you can just invest and ignore what is going on in the real world because it won't help you even if you had a crystal ball.
and that's a this is my that's favorite. And thank you for explaining that. This is my favorite chapter in the book, and it's chapter three. The stock market is not the economy, which is what you just said, excuse me, or in parentheses, or what toilet paper can teach us about investing. And there is, on the next page, it says, hoarding toilet paper is a spot-on illustration of how complex social systems work. The small actions of individuals can cause broad, irrational outcomes for the system. I think you just explained that. Yeah, so that that explains, you know, this idea of complex social systems or complex adaptive systems explains why the stock market doesn't seem to make sense a lot. Why it can go up when the news is bad and can go down when the news is good or, you know, or just hang out and and do basically nothing sometimes. It's why it's so hard to predict and it's because the stock market and the economy are both complex adaptive systems or complex social systems. And this is perfectly illustrated by what happened during COVID with toilet paper. So, you you know, Denise, if I were to say to you, oh, you know, there's this pandemic's coming and we're going to be, you know, locked down and there's going to be supply chain disruptions of all sorts of things. You know, I think most of us wouldn't have guessed that toilet paper is what was going to be hoarded. You'd think things more useful like maybe water or beans or beer or or whatever you need to, to, to make it through, right? But for whatever reason, people started buying lots of toilet paper, which at first probably is irrational. But what happened after that is arguably completely rational on an individual basis. So if you go to the store and there's no toilet paper there, it makes you worry that there's not going to be toilet paper in the future, so you want to buy more. So you order it on Amazon or you know, you go into Walmart, Target, Walgreens, wherever you buy your toilet paper, and if you find some, you buy it. And that's what happened to me. So my wife is the sort of person that keeps us fully stocked on everything. So going into the pandemic, we had plenty of toilet paper and paper towels and dish soap and all, you know, all sorts of these, these consumer staples. But um, so we had plenty, but in April of 2020, I went to Walgreens to pick up a prescription, and there was one package of toilet paper on the shelf. So I bought it, and as I was checking out, I, I literally said this to the clerk. I said, I am so sorry I am buying this toilet paper. I'm being part of the problem, not part of the solution. I don't need toilet paper right now, but because this is here, I'm going to buy it because who knows how long this will go on. And, of course, the clerk was kind of like, you know, just move on. She didn't say this, but got to move on, get your potential COVID breath away from me, uh, you know. But but that's a perfect example of what happens where it was rational for me to buy that toilet paper even though I didn't need it. And by doing so, I further contributed to the irrational system-wide effect of us running out of toilet paper as a society. And that's exactly what happens in the stock market because people look at other people and what they're doing And then we can learn, we spot, if there are patterns, we spot the patterns, we take advantage of them, which destroys the pattern. There's feedback loops, it changes the real world environment. And you can think about this, you know, in 2021, we had these meme meme stocks, as they were called, like GameStop and AMC. And these stocks rose basically because this, this bunch of people on Reddit decided they wanted to cause a stock to increase. And so it's just. I so, remember just, that. Just, I do. Yeah, recall, it was. Yeah, it was crazy. It. Yeah. And if you look at AMC movie th- theaters, again, it was really struggling, especially because of the pandemic, and there was no real reason for it to go up. But more and more of these Reddit people 
bought the stock, which caused the stock to go up, which caused other people to see the stock to go up, which caused them to buy the stock. And it had these real-world effects where AMC brilliantly decided to issue more stock. They said, if our stock's up, we're going to issue more stock, which is going to give us more money, which actually helped them ride through the problems they, they had. And then, of course, it's been very volatile. It crashed, and it went back up, and it crashed, and it went back up. Same thing for GameStop. But it just shows that we're all watching each other watch everybody else, like with toilet paper, and it can create these system-wide effects that are completely unpredictable. Like nobody would have predicted that AMC or GameStop, these two really struggling companies, were going to be huge performers in the first half of 2021. The same way it was impossible to predict that toilet paper would be the staple that everybody hoarded in the pandemic instead of you know beer or beans. Crazy. But it's an incredibly important mental model to keep in mind of why it's so hard to predict what's going to happen because the, the, these, these complex social systems have too many inputs and they have intelligent people that learn from, from other people's behavior that are, you know, make, that are making decisions. I, am, I have no idea if this is true or not. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe I'm making it up. But it seems like I had heard or read somewhere that there was a, a quote going around J.P. Morgan, I believe it was, who basically said, when your shine boy is giving you stock market tips, it's time to get out. Yeah, supposedly yeah. that's a true story, yeah. and, and I, I do believe it, it was. Um, yeah, so I, I forget if it was actually uh, John Pierpont Morgan back in, in the Great Depression or his John right. Yeah, one of these titans that I've did always come get up with Morgan in tips. my head. Right. Yeah, so it may may have been J.P. Morgan. Um, yeah, that, that that he he got a stock tip from his shoeshine boy, and then said, "Yeah, um, the market is at a high if there are people that are shining shoes that are speculating in stocks." So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, hey, that, you know, that happens that over up. and over. I'm so happy for me that I actually picked up yeah, something. Yeah, that's, that yeah, made yeah. That supposedly, I mean, who knows if that really happened? But it is a story that is commonly told and we saw this in 2021 with these meme stocks so my youngest daughter is still an undergrad and in 2021 um, she was telling me how people in her dorm had made you know 100 200 percent on GameStop you know and she was like dad should I buy into this GameStop thing you know she has this little e-trade account and I was like uh, no because <laughs> you don't know when it's gonna you know you don't know when it's gonna burst because it will there aren't economic fundamentals driving the GameStop. It's really just people watching other people watch each other, you know, make money. Um, and, and, you know, there's a little aspect of that, maybe a lot of aspect to that, to, to cryptocurrencies. And, you know, you see that in these different trends in these different industries where there becomes this euphoria around the potential of making money. And then you see people start to make money and you don't want to miss out. So you pile in after them and it, it can, it can create, you know, these, these speculative, speculative bubbles that always burst. Right. And let's go back to the toilet paper because that fascinated me. I live in southwest Louisiana. So, you know, six months, well, we have two seasons where I'm at. And I'm equidistant, yeah. by the way, between Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Got clobbered by both of them. So, wow. and we have two seasons in southwest Louisiana. We have hot and hotter in hell. And six months passed <laughs> is a hurricane season, which is happening right now. And during this whole toilet paper thing I was talking with my best friend who we don't hoard but we're prepared you know we're prepared yeah. for 
hurricane season. We're prepared to have no electricity. We have water. We have matches, actual matches. We have candles. We have batteries. We make sure that we have everything. And she said, are you going to be buying toilet paper? I said, I have four big old packages on the rack in my garage. I think I'm good. But we started paying attention, and all of a sudden, we were actually reading online Maybe it was ratted out and here, there, and yonder. People after all of this kind of passed, wanting to take these tons of toilet paper and get their money back. Well, that wasn't going to happen. And then these groups popped up who were bartering their toilet paper for other things. It got very strange. Yeah, it it, it is. It, it's really strange how people act. And again, a lot of it is because everybody's watching everybody else. Exactly. And, and it's and, and I'll tell you, um, in 2017, so I write this blog called The Interesting Fact of the Day. And it's just, it's non-financial things. It's just random things that people might find interesting. And I've written it since um, Groundhog's Day 2017. Um, and, and listeners, if you're interested, if you go to my website, johnmjennings.com, um, johnmjennings.com, you can find my blog. There's a, up in the menu, there's something called the IFOD, the interesting fact of the day. But anyway, in 2017, I wrote a blog post called Pandemic Preparedness 101 and talked about the fact that a pandemic in the future was inevitable. It was a matter of when and not if. And talked about what you should stock up on prior to a pandemic. And so I have this, you know, seven or eight things, and then once in a pandemic, what to do. And it really is laying out exactly how everybody should have been prepared for the COVID pandemic. And, but what's interesting, and so here, I write this, and I didn't do any of these things. <laughs> so I say, have a few weeks of water and food in your house. I do the same Have a battery-operated radio, a few, a few extra weeks of medications, a first aid kit, uh, have excess cash because it, and it, it, it COVID, but then also I say consider buying face masks that will limit the spread of disease. And again, I go into this pandemic, we didn't have any face masks, especially not the, the, you know, the the quality N95s. And it just goes to show you, like, here I am writing this blog on what to do, and I didn't do any of them in preparation. I have never owned a face mask. I have never worn one. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So I, w- I would not have done it either. But I am an introvert, and I rarely am out. Three people is too peoply for me, so I'm rarely out yeah. and about. And I order my groceries online, so yeah, it's all good. But yeah. it, it was interesting to watch people just do what, in many cases, I thought, well, that's irrational. Hang on a second. I just did that. Okay, that was irrational. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, me too. You know, we all do it. I mean, we give great advice, but how often do we really take our own advice? So I I get it. I really do. John, I wanted to ask you, we've got about 10 more minutes, and this is a fascinating conversation, so thank you. But what are the events, the essential investments, and we're back to mental models, from your book that our listeners really need to know, and where can they find them in the book? Uh, you said, excuse me, the essential investments? Yeah, essential investment mental models. Oh, yeah. So in, in my book, so you know, I have 35 of them. And in the appendix um, of the book, I, I helpfully just um, 
list them out. But but I'll tell you some of the things that I think you know for for people who are like I'd, I'd love to learn a bit about this, but you know I don't I, I don't want to read the book, which I totally get. Um, you know, there's a, a few other ones I want to mention because behavior is by far the most important ingredient of successful investing. And, you know, what does good behavior look like? And let me hit two real quick. And, and one is, is that when it comes to investing and many things in life, your default um, way of being should be to, to favor inactivity over activity. And one of my very favorite investment studies I've ever read is called Boys Will Be Boys, study or uh, examination of gender differences in investing. And what these academics did is they somehow got a discount brokerage, which is unnamed in the study, to give them 10 years of account data on 35,000 investment accounts. And what they did is they looked at which genders did better in investing um, in terms of returns. And, and they found that single females were the best followed by married females, followed by married males, with single males bringing up the rear. And they looked at why that was the case, and, and they found that, that both genders, regardless of marital status, did about equally as bad when it comes to making investment decisions. <laughs> so, so what they found was, is on average, whatever stock or fund or whatever that was sold outperformed whatever it was they bought. So in other words, they shouldn't have traded. And the reason the females did better than the males is that they traded 45% less. So if on average you're going to lose on every trade, you're better off trading less. And the reason they found the females were better was because they were less overconfident. They were still overconfident, just less than males. And this has been supported by all sorts of other studies that that in finance and investing, males are more overconfident than females. Now, females have their areas that they're more overconfident than males. It just so happens in investing, it's the males that are more overconfident. And you can look at that study and then compare it to one that Fidelity did where they were looking at what are our highest performing accounts, what characteristics do they have. And they looked over a 10-year time period and found that their highest performing accounts were those of dead people <laughs> or locked accounts, like someone who had switched jobs and hadn't moved over their 401k with Fidelity. And so you can look at it this way. The, the, the top is dead people, and then females, and then males. So as I write in my book, if you're a male, try to invest like a female. And if you're a female, try to invest like a male. Or I mean, as, like a dead person, excuse me. <laughs> and, and again, there's all sorts of studies saying that inactivity beats activity. So when you feel uncertain about the stock market or the economy, the best thing to do is nothing. Don't look at your portfolio. You know, go on a walk, read a book, uh, go see a movie, do something other than look at your portfolio, and then make yourself stay put in general. I mean, there are some times where you do need to make a change, and I discuss that, you know, what that looks like in my book, but in general, remain inactive. It is an incredibly powerful mental model in terms of investing behavior. That makes perfect sense. And I'm going to go off on more than a bit of a tangent. It's a tangent, but sometimes just leaving things alone is really helpful. And my aunt, years ago, she had, um, she had a coughing fit and she just, I mean, she really had a bad coughing fit. She aspirated into her lungs and she was brain dead for quite a while. When she oh, went in, yeah, when she went into the, the nursing home where she eventually passed, 
she had been diagnosed with a pretty nasty case of lung cancer. When she passed, oh. that lung cancer had disappeared because they didn't oh. treat her for it. They left her alone. Oh, wow. Wow. So something I, and I know that, that yeah, well, I, I'm not real good about going to the doctor ever. <laughs> unless, <laughs> yeah. unless I just am forced into it. You know, I have a strong sense that my body can regenerate, can take care of itself. I have a, you know, I have a good internal system going on, so I don't let other people yeah, mess good. around with it. But I'm equating that with the stock market as well, and I know it's a bit of a tangent, but it makes sense to me because sometimes you need to just leave it be. And I think that's what your messaging yeah. is here. Well, and, and all sorts of uncertainty. So, you know, learning to sit in your discomfort is an incredibly powerful behavior, not just in investing, but in all of life, is that when you feel uncomfortable about something, it's probably best to just let it be, <laughs> you know, see if, you know, this too shall pass. And, mm-hmm. um you know, you know, wait, wait a day, <laughs> wait a week until you decide to take action. So often having the, you, uh, you know, emotional uh, reaction to something that feels uncomfortable usually is not the best way to proceed. Um, and, and if I can, I'll tell you another behavior mental model, and that, that is to choose simplicity over complexity. And an issue in the wealth management industry is that it breeds complexity, and it be, everything becomes way more complex than it needs to be. And if you think about it, you know, really the only things you can invest in are you know, bonds, so fixed income, equities, basically stocks or private equity, commodities like gold, and then currencies. Those are, those are the four. That's, that's the building blocks. Those, those are the, you know, the, the basic elements. But yet if you go to a financial advisor, an investment manager, they're going to load you up with all sorts of different funds, like all the time, I see you know new clients come over, and you know even for smaller accounts, we just see you know 15, 20, 30, 40 different investment funds, and it's just needlessly complex. And you know, especially as if you have more wealth, starting to add on all sorts of different alternative investments, and all this complexity, mainly what it does is it creates more fees usually, more taxes, and it makes good investment behavior hard. And part of the reason for all this complexity is about 30 years ago, people started paying attention to university endowments like Yale and Harvard and Stanford that were posting these incredible returns, and you know they're, they're, they're posted publicly, so people were seeing this. And, and they started wanting to emulate these endowments by following what's called the endowment model or the Yale model. And these portfolios are incredibly complex. So individuals and their advisors started trying to emulate them. But what's fascinating is if you look at all these university endowments, and there's about 750 of them that report their returns, is if you take all these endowments, most of whom have over a a billion dollars, and you average their returns, the average return and the median return both are indistinguishable from a simple index portfolio that has three or four investments. Over the last 1, 5, 10, and 15 years, they're absolutely the same, which shows you that there are some big endowments like Yale, or, and I teach at Washington University. It's one of the top ones for the last five years. These, these big endowments do have this ability to produce outsized returns, but most of these endowments don't because the average 
is just an index portfolio. And what that should teach us as individual investors is, is you know, if we're going to try to be incredibly complex, the chances of us being Yale or Harvard or Washington University are about zero. We're going to be more like the endowments that are pulling down, <laughs> you know, the average to just a, a normal return. And we should seek to be simple. So if you're working with a financial advisor, tell your financial advisor that you want to have a simple portfolio because what they're likely to advise is a complex portfolio because they want to justify their existence. So if you went to a financial advisor, let's say you have a, you know $100,000 to invest, and you go to a financial advisor and they're like, okay, we're going to charge you 1% a year. And you're like, you're like, oh, wow, you know, that's, you know, you know, uh, uh, quite a bit of money. Um, they're going to put you in things that are more complex because if they just say, I'm going to put you in two uh, investments, I'm going to put you in a bond fund and the S&P 500 index, you'd say, and why am I paying you 1% to do that? I could do that myself. But yet that simple portfolio is almost certainly going to outperform the more complex one they put you in. So what does the the company say when, when that question is asked, well, why am I paying you? If you're going to put me in a very simple portfolio, how do they respond? Oh, to um, how does the financial advisor respond? Yeah. Well, it's, I'll tell you, it's really hard to do. This is this is why this conversation never happens. And we, as a firm, try to be more simple. Uh, again, <laughs> you know, I can't say that we have many. We do have some mini portfolios that just have two or three funds in them, but we do. But you know, we're what's known as a multifamily office, so we're providing all this, you know, in-depth help on, you know, we, we pay our clients bills and help them with the cash flow and their charitable planning and we run their, you know, estate planning entities and help them with estate planning and we do income tax planning. So we do all these other things to justify our existence. And if we didn't do all those things, it would be very hard for us to say, we're just going to put you in two or three funds. <laughs> but so that's, that's why we often are able to do a more simple portfolio because we're doing these other things. But if we were just doing investment management and we said, yeah, pay us all this money, and in return for that, we're going to put you in, you know, three funds. <laughs> it, it would be really hard to justify our existence. So what I'm suggesting to the listeners or readers of my book is that you give your financial advisor the direction to be simple. And really what they're hopefully providing for you is, is guidance in terms of behavior and, you know, funding your, your, your kids' education and retirement planning and estate planning and taxes and doing some of these other things. Because I do think most people need a financial advisor. It's just if you want better returns, you know, you should fall back on what they're helping with you, you with other than just the investments. And Vanguard has a concept, you know, the big mutual fund company, they have a concept called the advisor's alpha. And alpha in investing is a measure of outperformance. But what they say is instead of advisors, instead of trying to outperform the market and doing all these active things, and complex things. The advisor should work on having a, a simple portfolio and providing outperformance in terms of these, these non-investment things like income tax planning, estate planning, retirement planning, education funding, that all those things are what's valuable to clients. And by being more simple on the investments, you will paradoxically have higher returns. That actually makes sense to me. John, I sincerely appreciate your company today and spending time with you has been a definite pleasure and thank you for the book would oh, you mind you. sharing oh, you. your online presence and the preferred means of contact for those who yeah, wish to sure. learn more yeah, about sure. you yeah so my website johnmjennings.com 
um, you know, all one word, no, no periods, johnmjennings.com. And there's more about me and more about my book and my blog. And there's contact information. It has my, you know, cell phone and, um, you know, work email and all that jazz. So, yeah, anybody that would like to reach out, feel, feel free. I always love um, talking to, to people uh, about these sort of topics. Wonderful. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you wanted to share with the audience that I may not have had the good sense to ask? Is there anything else you can share? Yeah, you know, I would say, you know, you mentioned Denise that you're this big reader, and I am as well. And and, and I, I really, I really think that people will be happier in life. I, I, I research a lot and write on happiness quite a bit. If, if they turn off some of the social media and some of the electronics and some of the news and the TikTok and all that, and you know, they step back and just read more books. <laughs> I think you'll, everybody will be a little bit more calm, a little happier, a, a little wiser. You know, whether you're reading fiction or nonfiction or both, um, I just I, I just cannot be a bigger proponent of being a big reader. Um, it's made a huge difference in my life, and I think most of the people I know that that I think are wise um, tend to be big readers of books. Well, you're speaking my language in my office. In this room, I've got hundreds of books in here. I have hundreds of books all over the place. But these particular books in this room are all gifts from people like you. People have been on my podcast, and they now are part of my entrepreneurial library. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Well, listen, everybody, as we end today's episode, I'd really appreciate your feedback. If you found our insights helpful and enjoyed the show, excuse me, please support us by reviewing and rating on iTunes. Your feedback is really critical. It helps me to inspire and empower more individuals through the conversations with my guests. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and share your part in Success Radio. And thank you for tuning in. John, again, thank you so much. Denise, thank you. It's been great to be on and um, really enjoyed chatting with you. My pleasure. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 